the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. Many of you know that I come from the state of North Carolina, where the state religion is college basketball. And I spent uh, four good years at one of the principal temples of that religion, the University of North Carolina. Uh, My first year, my freshman year, was Michael Jordan's last year. And so that meant that we would simply see one of the greatest basketball players uh, of all time playing in our college gymnasium, if one had tickets. Now, to get tickets, there was an elaborate system. It was basically a lottery. Um, And they would, 8 o'clock Monday morning, the the office of the gymnasium complex would open and tickets would be given, first come, first serve. But some of us would have been camping out. And so you could begin camping out any time on Sunday. And that became sort of its own kind of subculture of college life. Uh, Camping out, um, waiting for the opportunity to get good tickets Monday morning. And so I was part of that group that would think all week, you know, what should we take? What do we want to eat? How do we pack the food? Uh, how do we pack the drink? You know, all of that. So we would, we would camp out overnight, and then Monday morning, 8 o'clock, usually by 9, 9.30, we would get there, and we would get tickets, usually. They might be good tickets, they might be bad tickets, but usually we would get tickets. My roommate, a guy named Rick, he had no patience with this camping out thing. He, he never camped out the whole time we were there. Instead, between classes, Monday morning, usually about 11 or 11.30, he would casually stop by the office of the gymnasium to see if any tickets were left. Wouldn't you know, every single time he did it, he got tickets. And not only did he get tickets, but his tickets were in a far better seat than our tickets that we had camped out and in some cases gone through the heat and in some cases gone through the cold. Uh, We would always be furious at Rick, and he would be very smug about it and rub it in throughout. As surely as it would be basketball season every fall, There would always be some great question uh, grounded in student protests and letter campaigns about the unfairness of this system, this lottery system for tickets. Um, It wasn't fair that some of us would show up and spend all our time and try to study or not study outside and get tickets. And then people like my roommate could simply waltz in and get really good tickets. Um, You can imagine how other people would chime into this. Um, uh, People who gave a lot of money to the university felt like they should get um, a a peg up on getting tickets. Um, Children of alumni should get tickets. Um, Family and friends of the athletes should get tickets. On and on and on it went. The system was unfair, we said. It goes against any system of justice. Some of us plan and do everything we should to get good tickets, and others just walk by. The university would say the same thing every year. Your tickets are free. What are you complaining about? 
I think of that experience when I read today's gospel. There is this innate cry for justice as I define it, as I understand it, as I feel it. There's a wonderful video uh, based on a TED talk that shows two capuchin monkeys who are trained to pick up a pebble and reach through a hole and give it to the lab assistant. And when they do, they get something in return. These two monkeys are in cages side by side, and the first monkey gets his pebble, pokes it through. The lab attendant gives the monkey a slice of cucumber. The second monkey watches this and does the same thing, gives the pebble. The lab assistant gives him a grape. Well, the first monkey sees this immediately and then gets his pebble all the quicker and gets it out for the lab assistant. He gets a cucumber again. But when he sees that the monkey number two gets a grape again, the first monkey takes his cucumber and throws it at the lab assistant and then begins to bam on the desk and shake the cage. I laugh every time I see that old video because I relate to that first monkey. I want the grape, especially if I pick up the pebble and give it. If I follow instructions, I want the good that I'm due, that I deserve. It's only just. And so we hear that in today's gospel. This gospel about a landowner who is generous to all. And yet those who have worked longer hours and in the hot sun, they want more than those who have come at the last minute. This story is often told in the church as a reflection of something that the early Christians were going through as they wondered whether those who had never been Jews, who had followed religious traditions of Judaism and then come to know Christ as the Messiah, whether they shouldn't be accorded more respect than those Gentiles who had never been Jews, who simply came in at the last minute and followed Jesus. Churches in our day go through their own version of that sort of question. Uh, Should lifelong church members be accorded particular privileges or the person who just walks in? Does it matter? Jesus clusters this story in the midst of kingdom parables, stories he tells about the, the richness and the generosity of God's kingdom that is open and free to all, regardless of merit, regardless of worth. That's an incredibly difficult thing to remember for me. I don't know about you. I love that this gospel is paired with one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture, the story of Jonah. You probably know the outline of Jonah's story. Jonah is, is a prophet at sort of the height of his um, career as a prophet. Early on, he hears from God that he should go to Nineveh and prophesy against the wicked Ninevites. Jonah knows the Ninevites are wicked. Everybody knows the Ninevites are wicked. And so Jonah thinks this is a waste of time. It's a waste of energy. I want no part in it. I'm, I'm worthy of greater things than going to Nineveh and talking to them. And so Jonah gets on a ship and asks to be taken in the complete opposite direction of Nineveh. The fact that Jonah could get on a ship and pay to be taken on a ship shows us that Jonah was not a begging prophet. Jonah had means. He had standing. 
which just adds to my picture of Jonah as being someone who, who probably had a sort of, a sort of a dignity and weight to his office. And here God is asking him to go to the slums and tell this, this bunch of misfits and no goods to shape up. Jonah wants no part of it. It's not a part of Jonah's plan or vision for how he should serve God. The story continues on. Jonah eventually gets to Nineveh. He does tell the people to shape up, repent, love God, and move on. And guess what? They do. Everybody in Nineveh, we're told, even the king puts on sackcloth and ashes and repents. Even the animals show repentance. Then Jonah gets really angry. Isn't this just like you, God, to let them off the hook? (laughs) They're not worth your grace. They're awful people. Everybody knows they're horrible. Why don't you just send fire and destruction on them and be done with them, God? And then God gets Jonah alone in this passage we read today. And Jonah feels the sun and then a, a nice plant comes up to shade him, but then the plant dies favorite verse of scripture for me is that that mighty little phrase, God appoints a worm. (laughs) It's a wonderful reminder that in the midst of Jonah, who was, you know, a well-known prophet at the height of his career, God chose to work through a worm to accomplish God's will. We're told that even the animals understood. God works through all of creation and reminds us of our place in creation. God asks Jonah, are you really that upset about the plant? The plant that you had nothing to do with? You didn't plant it, you didn't water it, you didn't dig for it, you didn't care for it, you did nothing. Why would you get upset? And Jonah just continues on, yes, I'm upset enough to die. Jonah's mad about a lot of things, but especially at the root of it is his sense of God's justice has been disappointed. Jonah reminds me of that elder brother in the, the, uh, the parable of the, um, of the prodigal son, where the younger son goes out and wastes his inheritance and gets into all sorts of trouble. And he comes back and the father forgives him. And the elder son is furious and rightfully resentful. The elder son says, look, I've stayed at home. I've worked hard. I've prayed. I've, I've lived my life by the book. Where is my fatted calf? Where is my party? And the father of both basically looks at them with that same attitude of the landowner in our gospel saying, I love you both. Who are you to begrudge my generosity? I'm good to everyone. It's not for you to judge. The Old Revised Standard Version puts it that way. Do you begrudge my generosity? Newer versions say, are you envious because I am generous? Sometimes the honest answer would be yes. Yes, I am, God. I wish your justice were more like mine. And then I would feel better about getting people what I think, about people getting what I think they deserve. God doesn't work that way. And these stories from the scriptures remind us of that over and over again. And so who is Jesus talking about when he talks about those who come at the last hour and get the fullness of God's blessing? Surely the early church told this story to remind itself 
that those who were new to the faith were every bit as much a part of God's generosity and blessing, and we can remind ourselves of that, that the person who might walk in the door today and might want this to be their church home um, is, is as open and full of God's richness and blessing as the person who comes from five generations of Episcopalians and priests and bishops. God loves us all, and God wants us all to be filled with God's blessings. These scriptures remind us that for God, it's, it's about our being. God loves us just for being. God doesn't love us for our doing it's a hard thing for me to remember. Um, growing up in this country, growing up in the American South, uh, the idea of the Protestant work ethic is everywhere. It's huge. Um, one works hard, one takes care of certain things, and then one can expect certain good things in return. People like Mr. Osteen, who have a religion of sorts in Texas. I don't call it Christianity, but it's something. It's based on this idea. Uh, the better you live, the harder you pray, the more you follow this sort of pattern, then your life is going to be filled with blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Notice again, that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ says just the opposite. But the blessing we receive from God has nothing to do with what we earn. As I notice every generation in our country struggling with the idea of universal health care, not just the mechanics of it, but the idea of it, I wonder how much of this is lurking just un underneath, this idea that justice should be at play. I sometimes find myself looking at someone who, who doesn't seem to take care of themselves, who eats too much and drinks too much and, and doesn't live a careful life. And I think, well, you know, when they get a heart attack, I could see it coming. That's that sort of sense of warped justice that I carry around in me. And so when we magnify that around the country and we think of particular people who, who maybe don't take care of themselves for whatever reason or eat certain things that I might not eat or are addicted to drugs or any other thing, and then we think that they should deserve health care and my taxes should pay for it, I wonder what the gospel says about that. Maybe everybody should be afforded the same thing. None of us is worthy. Just because I happen to be a priest in the Episcopal Church, should I have such a fantastic health policy that I have? By what right? By no right. By no sense of justice. This parable Jesus tells is about the kingdom of God that turns everything upside down. If you remember those other stories, the kingdom of God is always bigger than we can possibly imagine. The kingdom of God is a place where loaves and fishes are multiplied, where everyone is fed, where water is turned into wine, where mustard seeds sprout into huge trees, and even a little tiny bit of faith can move a mountain. It's a place where the last will be first, and the first will be last. The gospel that we hear this morning is good news. It's intended to be good news for all of us because we all of us are promised the inheritance of eternal life in Jesus Christ. 
It's ours as gift, as grace. It belongs just as much to those of us who were baptized years ago, to those of us who might yet be baptized, to the longest member of the church, to the newest member of the church, reminding us that God's grace is not at all about what we can earn or what we can pray or how many hours or tears we spend in church. It's only God's love that saves us, God's eternal life, God's pure, undeserved gift. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. There is no end to his greatness. Let us give thanks for God's grace given to us and to all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.